People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be t- I'll be finishing my look at Charles Brockton Brown's novel Wheeland. In the first episode, and we looked at the first half of the novel, and we met Clara, our narrator, her brother uh, Theodore Wheeland. He just goes by Wheeland in the in the novel. He's the titular character. We've met the stranger who comes into their life, Carwin, and we've seen strange things begin to to happen. Carwin appears in the house, in people's closets, uh, there people are hearing voices, uh, these voices seem to be able to predict the future, and all this strange stuff is going on. So where we left off exactly, Carwin was found in Clara's bedchamber in her closet when she was going to look for some books to read to study her father's past. He was there, he flees, and a little bit later, Clara's you know, essentially boyfriend, uh, Plyel is his name, and he had a fiance, but she she died, or he got he got word that she died, and then he started getting closer and closer to Clara. But he comes with all these accusations that she was having an affair with with Carwin, and just as we left off, he committed to to leaving the area altogether. Now, as we pick up in chapters 13 and 14, we're going to hear Pleyel's entire story where she, he explains why he's come to the conclusion that, that Clara was having an affair. This is something we, we know she hasn't had. Clara's not the most reliable narrator, of, uh, of course, and there's a lot of strange things going on in the story, even in Clara's own mind, but you know, there's no evidence that she actually had this, this tryst with, with Carwin. Now, the subtitle of this novel is called The Transformation, and there's actually several transformations in the novel. There's transformations of people's minds, there's physical transformations that people go through. Um, and one, another transformation we see here is the transformation in Pleyel's feelings about Clara. And we see how strong gender ideology really is in early America. And it, it seems that Charles Brockton Brown might be trying to expose this as a bit brutal and, and hypocritical. But we see Pleyel's just sudden transformation in his ideas about her and he talks about it directly quote i was cautious in deciding i recalled the various conversations in which the topics of love and marriage had been discussed as a woman young beautiful and independent it behoved you to have forfeited your mind with just principles on the subject your principles were eminently just had not their rectitude and their firmness been attested by your treatment of that specious seducer dashwood these principles i was prone to believe exempted you from danger to this new state of things I was not the last to pay my homage to this unrivaled capacity, insinuation, and eloquence of this man. I have disguised, but could never still the conviction that his eye and voice had a witchcraft in them which rendered him truly formidable. But I reflected on the ambiguous expression of his countenance, an ambiguity which you were the first to remark. And quote, he goes on, it goes on for pages and pages where he talks about how he, he basically thought better of Clara. Um, and he never thought that she'd be the kind of person who would jump into bed with a, a, a weird guy like, like Carwin. Um, 
And he initially, actually we see him in earlier chapters actually joke with Clara about, oh, we're falling in love with Carwin. But this was a joke. And, and he explains here how he felt that the feelings that were his feeling that Carwin and Clara had a very honest and relationship that wasn't one that was, was leading anywhere romantically. And so by chapter 13 is mostly about Pleyel's changing feelings about, about Clara. Um, chapter 14, we see Pleyel continue his, his story. And, you know, we know we can't trust what he relates here because we've been with Clara the whole time. She's the narrator of the story. Now, she might be lying a little bit, and there's a good reason to think that she's not telling the complete truth in the story. And it's, it's hard to say that anyone's telling the complete truth in the story. But nevertheless, Pleyel has a very, very detailed story. Um, and, you know, most of this story deals with the night where he, he hears Carwin and Clara talk about their tryst, talk about their romantic um, encounter that night. And it's very clear. He, he's convinced, 100% convinced that that's what he heard. Um, and it's not like the strange voices that he's heard before. It was an actual conversation between two people. He also shows how he dug up some of Carwin's past particularly that Carwin is likely an escaped criminal uh, who, had, who has murdered a woman. Now, so this is really interesting. Back in Chapter 4, we, we had this like side story about this major steward and, his, and how his wife like, seemed to just disappear, and he runs into this girl who turns out to be his daughter, and she's actually like a servant in, in the household. And we get this whole backstory about how he was kind of looking for this wife. And... His wife's name was Louisa Conway, and the person that Leland was supposed to kill was someone of the name of Conway. So we're meant to think that there's maybe some relationship here. Now that story actually gets resolved in the last chapter, what happens, what, you know, the whole steward thing. And it's, it's kind of odd that Brockton Brown, Charles Brockton Brown felt the need to go back and fill in that story at the end. Um, but, but he does, and it's a little ambiguity that he throws into this tale just these little odd coincidences that he, he seemed to like so much. Um, we also learn in these reports about Carwin's murder, and, and Plyle seemed to have dug quite deep into them, we learn that Carwin seems to have strange abilities, and this is known on the other side of the, of the pond. Um, and then he relates specifically what he heard them talk about. He says, no, it is impossible to repeat your avowals of love, your appeals to former confessions of your tenderness, to former deeds of dishonor, to the circumstances of your first interview that took place between you two. It was on that night when I traced you to this recess. Thither he had he enticed you, and there you have ratified the unholed compact by admitting him. Um, and so this is Pleyel trying to say about how um, disgusted he is by, by this. Now, we know that Clara did not say these things or do these things. It's not even really in her character to do that. Um, and then Pyle leaves. He finally leaves. He'll be back in the story just briefly at the end. But for all intents and purposes, he's gone from our story. Now, in Chapter 15, Clara gets a letter from Carwin, and it, and it demands a meeting. And she's, of course, horrified. She's heard these horrible things about Carwin. First, he, he was in her room. Right? He opened the closet and he was in a room, and when she's like, what are you doing here? He actually says that, I was going to rape you, but a voice told me to stop. I mean, that's, it's a really bizarre um, kind of way of confession, a way to get out of that. You know, it's a, on one level, you know, we have comedy stories where people get stuck in someone else's closet, and they have to explain it, and it's, it's kind of funny. But if, if that really happens, it's, it's kind of a horrifying thing. And then his excuse that he was there to 
to rape her is is it is a bit bizarre. And then she she hears he's a murderer and an escaped criminal with weird abilities. And then she gets this letter from him saying, "I'll be at your house at a particular hour. You need to grant me this interview. I have to tell you something." He says, "Quote: If you choose to admit me to your conference." Provided that conference has no witnesses, I'll disclose to you the particulars, the knowledge of which has the utmost ha- importance to your happiness. Farewell. And there's that. That's that's the the meeting. So he's actually going to come to her her house. So she she kind of holds off going to the meeting because on the, on this estate there's like her brother's house and their family, and so it's her, her brother, Catherine, her sister-in-law, and these four kids. We never really see the four kids. And then there's the other house, which. Clara lives in, right? And so she actually goes down to kind of avoid this meeting. She goes down to her brother's house, sort of fleeing there. She's full of these fears and doubts. And, and a lot of the story's bulk is just kind of this back and forth in, in Clara's mind, her personal reflections. Uh, page 132 in the Library of America version of this tale, it's in chapter 15. We have, you know, a whole page essentially of this back and forth of should she see Carwin, why she's fearful of him, you know, and all this. Uh, but she goes to her brother's place and she finds the family is is not there. And so this is this kind of forces her to essentially go back to her house around the time of, of the meeting with, with Carwin that, that, was, that was scheduled. Well, Carwin scheduled it. He said, I'm going to be there at a certain time. So that's chapter 15. In chapter 16, Clara goes back to her house and she sees a light in her house, right? And, you know, it seems that we're meant to think that Carwin is in her house again. And he seems to have the ability to come and go to her house without any, any trouble. And she arms herself and enters the house. And we got this wonderful horror movie cliche, right? Where, you know, someone's in your house. You know, you shouldn't go in there because he's dangerous. We know it's a threat, but you arm yourself as best you can. But you have that curiosity. You need to see what it is. You need to expose the horror, right? Because it's easier to, to face it than to... Than to let it be unknown, right? It's like that fear of the unknown is greater than the fear of, to life and limb. So she goes into the house to confront him, and she hears this voice, hold. Say, hold. This is a, we've heard this before. This is the same voice that she heard when she tried to go into the closet. She heard, hold, hold. And she opens the closet anyways, and there's Carwin in there. And then he says that he tries to talk his way around that, of course. So she eventually goes to her chamber and sees a note from from Carwin. And the note just says, there was, a fo- I, there was folly in expecting your compliance with my invitation. Judge how I was disappointed in finding another in your place. I have waited, but to wait any longer would be perilous. I shall still seek to interview, but it would be at a different place in time. Meanwhile, I write this. How will you bear? How inexplicable will be this transaction? An event so unprecedented, a sight so horrible. And now it gets horror. Really, it becomes a horror story because she, Carwin's not there. She just has this note with these, this implication that something horrible has happened, right? A sight so horrible is what he writes. And then she turns around to her bed and it's got those it's that old style bed with the with the curtains, right? And she opens it up and there's Catherine's dead body there. So all the signs point to Carwin being the, the murderer. So, um, yeah, so she's Catherine's dead body. 
Um, chapter 17, it, it takes place just a little bit after these events. And Wieland, her brother, comes into the house talking to himself. He says, this is too much. Any victim but this, and I will be done. Have I not sufficiently attested my faith and my obedience? She that is gone, they, they that have perished, that were linked with my souls and by tithes, which only thy commands would have broken. But here is sanctity and excellence surpassing humans. This workmanship is thine, and it cannot be thy will to heap on it into ruins. And so he's babbling, seeming to talk to someone. And people come to the house, apparently to investigate the death of Catherine. She says, Clara says, I'll go to help the children. I'll take care of the children in this horrible, on this horrible day. And then the reaction to the direction of the people she's talking to confirms that they were also killed. And that when Whelan said, you know, that they were the sacrifice, this, she was talking about not just his wife, but his child too. Um, Louisa Conway was also killed, right? So this is um, Louisa Conway, that, that daughter of that um, uh, Major Stewart um, was, that, that was working in that, that house was, was also killed. I think I mentioned before Louisa Conway was the mother's name, but no, we, I don't think we get the mother's name, but uh, we, we just assume her name was Conway, right? And then Clara kind of falls ill. She faints and, 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 and sort of passes out, and she's going to be out of it for a while. Um, when she finally wakes up in Chapter 18, at some time has passed, enough time for the murderer to have been caught, the murderer to have been put on trial and convicted. So um, it, it, she was... You know, the horror of the death of all those, those four children and her sister-in-law were too much for her, and she, she just passes out. This is kind of a, a silly de a device, right? You can imagine passing out momentarily for a while, but to just be sick and fall ill for an extended period of time because of that, it's just a device so Charles Brockton Brown can then can have kind of reveal told in, in flashback. So in Chapter 18, she, she's not talking to Wheeland or others. She's talking to her uncle, Thomas Cambridge. And he'll be a character for much of the rest of the novel, um, kind of a side character. And as Clara recovers, she begins to talk with him about what happened. And she really asks about, you know, have they caught Carwin? That's her main focus. She, she really thinks, she's convinced Carwin was the one who did the deed. And she wants to know how he, if he's been caught. And he's shocked to learn that Carwin was not the murderer. Now, Cambridge is kind of a rational type. He's a very evidence-based He's a bit like Pleyel in that way. And Cambridge makes a bit of a joke like, well, maybe Carwin was involved in some way, but he wasn't the instigator. You know? and, they, and she actually, she, he says, like, they've actually already caught the murderer. He's been tried and convicted based on his own testimony. So he, he, he actually confessed. So there's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how we got the rational versus the supernatural here. Um, the legal, and we got characters who kind of represent the legal and the rational, like Pleyel, and, and now Cambridge comes in and fits in that role, while Wieland and Clara and even Carwin, in his way, seem to be more drawn to the supernatural, and, and, and they have the mad mind, right, the non-rational mind. This was, of course, before modern psychiatry, so a novel about madness in a pre-psychiatric time. Uh, we'll give an interesting window into, into that, and I, th I think in those days it was more... You know, madness was seen as a more mystical, supernatural thing. And then we see her read the newspaper, and this is the big reveal. And we get it in the next chapter, chapter 19. Chapter 19 then does reveal that Wieland was the killer. Um, now, we, 
we don't got I, I read this a couple times and and this time I read it I, I, I really paid attention to this aspect of it I wanted to see if there was clues that Wieland was the killer now he heard voices but so did other people so we thought something weird was going on whether it was a ghost or, or some character was causing the voices it wasn't him alone who, who saw it but as you reread this you you're going to be looking for clues to Wieland's badness and there are not that many to be found in fact we don't have that many scenes with Wieland to to think about in fact in the previous scene Wieland and Clara had a fairly normal conversation about Pliel's accusations and there was no real sign of his madness there it's only when he comes in babbling to himself talking to God that we we see something up but um, it, it's still a bit of surprise the first time you read it that that Wieland is revealed as the killer so during the trial, Whelan gave his motive, and he's basically, he has a long story about this, and he gives a lot of details, but basically what he's telling the jury and the judges is that he command, was commanded by God to kill his family. He brought Catherine to Clara's house to sacrifice her, so that was, and he was going to kill Clara too. Uh, he was probably going to kill Pliel if he would have been there, but he actually set this up as a sacrifice. He killed his children at his house, and then he was going to kill Catherine in in Clara's bed. So this was that's why she was there, right? Um, it, and here's some of the language. He says, "Where wh where was her bloom? These deadly and blood suffused orbs, but ill resemble the azure and ecstatic tenderness of her eyes. The lurid scream that meandered over her bosom, that glow of love that was wont to sit upon that cheek are much unlike those vivid stains and this hideous deformity. Alas, these were the traces of that agony, the gripe of the assassin had, that had been here. I'll not dwell upon my lapse in desperate and outrageous sorrow. The breath of heaven has sustained me, was withdrawn, and I sunk into a mere man. I leapt from the floor, I dashed my head against the wall, I uttered screams of horror, I panted after torment and pain. Eternal fire and the bickerings of hell compared with what I felt were music and a bed of roses. I thank my God that his degeneracy was transient, that he deigned once more to raise me aloft. I thought upon what I had done as a sacrifice to duty and was calm. My wife was dead, but I reflected that though the scope of human consolation was closed, yet others were still open. If my transports of, an, of a husband were no more, the feelings of a father were still scope for exercise. End quote. Um, and the whole testimony is kind of filled with this, this religious, religious language. We knew he was religious. We, we didn't know he was like, religiously insane um, so he heard, you know basically it comes down to he heard a voice that told him he must also kill his children so is this the same voice that the others have been hearing is it the same voice that says that clara hears from time to time you know is that the same voice or is it a different voice are both clara and wheeland insane is, is how was carwin involved in all this these are the questions uh, we have now in chapter 20 clara can't read anymore you know, the children are always off, off screen. We don't see them murdered. We don't see their bodies. We don't even see them play really at all. They're just mentioned. And even their, the, the courtroom scene with him talking about describing the murder of the children, that's also off screen. So she actually passes out again, but she recovers and then she reads the rest of the trial transcripts and reports. And then we get to the question of sentencing. And the question of the death sentence is actually addressed in the trial and it's in the transcript. And he, he denies that he should be killed because he, he thinks he's doing God's duty. He thinks there's a, some kind of purity to his act, um, the, despite you know, its, its horrific nature. 
Um, nevertheless, he's not sentenced to death. He's put it basically in life in prison because he was deemed insane. So he's kind of put as criminally insane. I don't think they had like not guilty by reason of by insanity in that day, but they would know where people's sentences, I guess. Um, Charles Brockton Brown knew law. Now, Clara, after reading this, yeah, sorry. So she's th she thinks Carwin is still somehow the designer of this. She can't uh, stop believing that Carwin is is the villain here. She can't fully believe that her brother was did alone. But she, there's no way of explaining how Carwin really could have been the instigator of this. Uh, we also learn in this chapter we get some of the background in Clara's family. We we started the novel with that. And we know there's something up with her father. But we actually learned that madness ran in her family, and including the hearing of voices. Hearing the voices is something that, that runs through the family. So now, we, this, if it's just Clara and Wieland who hear the voices, then we just say they're just they got the family illness. But Pleyel also heard voices, right? And voices that seem credible. So it's... You know, what is the truth here? It's, it's a really fascinating question. I think that's one of the things that makes this novel so, so great. Um, chapter 21, we kind of go back to the question of Pleyel. Clara thinks about her love for Pleyel and how it's faded. And she does think about what happened to him. Um, you know, she's trying to think what to do with her life now. That's why she's thinking of Pleyel. And she thinks, well, maybe Pleyel never really loved her and, and that's really not a future for her. She reviews the past of, of their relationship. She wants to go, though. She decides she's going to leave because she can't stay here and, and be reminded of the horrible thing that happened to her family. But she wants to figure out what to do with Wieland. And she decides, she has to decide, does she keep him mad? and therefore happy and content, or does she try to cure him? So this idea that she, somehow madness can be cured, or that you can snap out of your madness, is, is I think, another kind of maybe pre-modern idea of mental illness. But she thinks that you know, if she keeps him mad, he, he'll never have to face his guilt in the same way. But if she does break him free of his, of, of his insanity, he'll fa feel the full blunt, blunt of his guilt. Cambridge uh, explains to him that you really shouldn't see Wieland and talk to him because he, he actually wants to kill, he wanted to kill Pleyel and Clara in addition to the others. The, you know, that was part of the plan, part of the order he got from God. She chooses to leave America, but, but needs closure. So that's what we learned in chapter 21 is that she's going to stick around for a while to try to seek closure. And, and by that, she, she's going to probably talk to, to Wieland. Now, events are going to intervene that that make that unnecessary because in chapter 22 she goes to the grave she goes to visit the grave of her sister-in-law and the kids and then she goes back to the house and who's there but carwin carwin is there now we reach the climax of of our of our tale and so carwin finally gets his chance that he was trying for in previous chapters to explain his side of the story and to do his full confession now he's going to deny having anything to do with the murders but he's filled with guilt and but at the same time he's saying i'm innocent i didn't do anything wrong but i did do some things wrong and i maybe was a little mischievous but i never really had a bad heart or a bad intention and he's you know it's interesting to play with why he feels this guilt if he's so if, if he's innocent but Carwin does have many sins, uh, at least in the sense of the 19th, 18th century American values. 
he he's a sin against rationality in a way because of his, his overall oddity and he seems to have some abilities we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, he's a, he's an, an offense to religion. He's an offense to, I mean, the fact that he deceives people, he does do that. He's also sexually transgressive, and, and that's a huge subtext in this novel, is the sexual transgressions that, that Carwin engages in. But anyways, we're going to hear his story. And it, what it rests on is that he has the ability of ventriloquism. He has the ability to throw his voice. Um, and he can do this quite well. He can, he can make his voice sound like it's coming from somewhere else, and he can change his voice. So, you know, this explains a lot of the voices that, that people have, have heard. Not all of them. That's the thing. So we still have this madness running the family, and some of this madness is voices, right? Now, of course, the totally rational explanation for this would be that Carwin is a villain, and he did give Whelan the voices to, to kill his children, and he, he drove her to that, drove him to that, and, and that he's responsible for all the voices, right? He did them all, I guess would be one explanation. But that doesn't seem to be the case. The case seems to be that he did some, and others were, were, were coming from these people's minds. So he goes through his story, and some of this is just him being mischievous um, and playing around with his ability. Some of it is protecting himself because he started to have an affair with the servant Judith, one of the servants on the farm named Judith. And he saw her often and, th and she's the one who lets him in and out of the house. And this is why he's sometimes in the house is actually he was there to, to have trysts with, with Judith. Now, the earlier when Clara heard a discussion about murdering her, he convinced that he had this conversation, but he never murdered. He never followed through on it. And it wasn't about Clara. It was about someone else they were talking about murdering. So it was more like a playful, you know, people might do this joke around about murdering someone. But uh, that's, it was about someone else. And a lot of what he was trying to do is direct people away from the temple. So the voices people heard to stay away from the, the, the outdoor temple was him trying to protect that because that was where... He, he meets Judith for trysts. He continues his explanation in, in chapter 23. He admits that he read Clara's diary. He was curious and he was snooping. And this explains why he was in her closet, right? Her diary was kept with her father's diaries, which he was trying to look at. And that's why he, he appeared suddenly in her closet. He also admits that he made the lover talk for Pleyel's benefit. You know, he, he doesn't like Pleyel, and, and when he knew Pleyel was snooping and, and listening, he made up he, he made up this conversation between him and Clara, because he can make his voice sound like Clara's, I guess. He, he does this in order to uh, just piss off uh, Pleyel and to be a bit of an asshole. So he admits these, these sins, but he said that's all, he've ever, is all he's ever done. It does explain a lot. Uh, Whelan's description explains a lot. Um, now, as for the newspaper accounts about his crimes, he, he claims that these were lies set up by some of his Euro enemies who are still in Europe who wanted to discredit his name, but they, there was never a, a murder or he never ran away from jail. The last thing he reports is that he saw Catherine's body when he came to the house to meet Clara, and when she didn't show up, he, he sees the body and he fled. Right? So that, that's more or less the explanation. And it's, it's not bad. It, it, it seems to fill in a lot of the holes in the story and explain quite a lot. It doesn't explain everything. But when you add it to Whelan's insanity, and maybe Clara's insanity, it, it does 
package the novel together quite nicely, and it's really clever. I think, you know, the the idea of, of people hearing voices is interesting enough, but you know, you don't have it explained by by one thing, the supernatural or the nat, nat, natural. You you have some of it explained by natural means and some explained by supernatural means, and so it kind of works almost like a little detective novel where you try to go back and and see all the, you know, see what is explained by Carwin's explanation and what isn't, right? So that 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 kind of gives this novel some of the fun in the in the reread. Now, during the interrogation, this starts in chapter twenty-four. During the interrogation, Wheeland arrives. He's escaped from jail, right? And he seems to come, he has come to finish the job, and, and by that job is to kill Clara. So he's still fully insane. Um, Clara and or Carwin and 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 Car Carwin and Clara try to explain what happened, and they're and they're doing this in a way hoping to release. Whelan from whatever demon has possessed him or whatever, his madness. So there's this idea again that if, if he can be thrust with rationality that explains the voices then he wouldn't be crazy anymore. Um, during this dialogue though, Carwin escapes and it seems he's fleeing. It seems he's running away to leave Clara to her fate. Um, so chapter 25 is just Whelan and Clara in their, their kind of final confrontation. Um, he goes, he does, Clara is able to talk him down for a moment, and, he, and he's temporarily sane enough to regret his actions, but it only lasts for a moment. He starts to talk, see Carwin then. He starts to fit Carwin into his delusion and, 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 and use it like, you know, he can't, he can't, exp, he, he sees how Carwin's ability can explain some of, of what happens, but he starts to say that then Carwin is not a, a, a rational actor of his own. He's... He's not free either. He's actually a demon. And as a demon, he's created by God and he's actually part of God's agent. And he's the one who has been ordering. He, he ordered then Whelan through Carwin to, to kill his family. Clara fights him off. Um, but, you know, but they, they actually battle. And it's, it's she, again, she kind of does us off screen. She, she says she can't describe the final blows in her narration. But there seems to be a, a gruesome fight uh, where Clara is fighting for her life. And that, that's how chapter 25 ends. And now in chapter 26, before Clara can, you know, she gets the upper hand and before she can, can kill or before she can be killed by Wheeland, a voice shouts out, you know, just to stop. And this voice is, is Carwin. So Carwin actually stuck around. He, he, he stuck around. He, so he kind of becomes a hero at the end. Yeah. At the last minute, you know, using his ventriloquism to to moment to stop uh, Wheeland. Wheeland then, you know, falls completely into his madness and kills himself in front of Clara. Um, Carwin departs then with a little bit of redemption. He saved Clara. He's freed her brother from his madness, and and he's confessed his sins, such as they are, to Clara. So, with a relatively clean slate, Carwin is able to. To, to leave. Later on, he'll explain what he can to, to Plyel and, and try to get some forgiveness from, from him. Uh, the final chapter of the novel is chapter 27, and this is three years later in France. And this chapter sort of has two parts. We get the core resolution to the story uh, as far as what, what happened to Clara, because she like picked up the pen again for three years, saying she said she was never going to write it again. In fact, she said she's going to kill herself after telling the tale. Obviously, she doesn't. 
three years later, we, we, she picks up the pen and says what happened to her and how she ends up happily ever after. And then we get the Stewart story, the major Stewart story comes back and it's finalized. It's almost like a loose end that bothered uh, Charles Brockton Brown that he had to explain. Okay, so let, let's do with Clara first. Um, she she moves uh, out of America as she as, as she previously planned to. Uh, at one point, Clara's almost killed in to, in a fire, and then she moves to her uncle's to live. And there, she reunites with Pliel, and Carwin and Pliel have a meeting where everything is explained and, and worked out between them. Uh, Pliel eventually, um, uh, you know understands the truth of what happened that night and she no longer blames Clara. Also, the interesting thing is that note that he got earlier that said that his girlfriend died, that was a lie. And it was apparently she wanted to surprise him or something, so she sent this letter to try to trick him and or she's trying to get away and 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 so that was that wasn't true and then he actually goes back and he meets up with her and, and they get married, but she dies and so he remarries Clara at some point. So Pliel and Clara end up married. And then you think the novel's over, but we get the story of, of Major Stewart. So after Louisa Conway died, uh, Major Stewart, you know, he's sort of saddened by that, but then he goes and continues to search for his, the woman who, who left him. And so the heart of this story is, and, and Clara learns all this when she's, she's in England, is that Stuart had this enemy named Maxwell back in like an army days and and he wants to get revenge and so the revenge he gets is he essentially seduces his wife and you know pursues her all on the pretext of just kind of getting revenge on, on Major Stuart and this Maxwell he's a really bad guy I mean he's as bad as Carwin seems to be this Maxwell guy is even worse um, he seduces her he, he she eventually well, yeah, he seduces her and abandons her, and she later dies quite young. So, Louisa Conway's mother dies, uh, and Major Stewart eventually is killed in a in a fight with Maxwell. Where Maxwell, they meet one day, and then Stewart challenges Maxwell to a duel. And instead of the duel taking place, Maxwell seems to kill Stewart, like you know, murders him in the night or something. So, this. It's a strange conclusion to the story. It's, it's interesting stuff, and it, it would be a nice little short story about this uh, kind of this mystery of what happened to this young woman's mother. It, but it's tacked on to the end, and, and Clara felt the need, apparently, to, to tell this part of the story. Um, so that does it with the, the, the chapters and the novel Wieland. It's, it's a really fascinating novel. I, I love it. I've read this a few times now, and I keep coming back to it, and I get more more stuff on it. Just a great creepy uh, gothic novel with great mystery. Um, I love the device of ventriloquism it's how it's, and how it's used alongside the madness of hearing voices. Um, it's a really horrific story, of course. You have a lot of murder and sinister characters in it. Um, and a lot of impressions are, are ripped away, right? Carwin, who seems kind of weird um, and in and insidious is later revealed to be not a bad guy. And what's interesting about this is in the terms of the storytelling, um, Clara, by the time she's writing this, already knows Carwin's not that bad. She's got the full story, but she still writes about him as this villain and this you know, strange guy. 
Um, so she never fully, it seems, trusts him. But then you have other characters who seem more upright, like Maxwell, maybe, who are actually quite bad. You have people who seem rational, who are actually insane. So a lot of a lot of doubts, and there's a lot of doubt in the story too. You're, there's there's holes in everyone's story, and Brown doesn't feel the need to to explain any of these to you fully. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the novel about the separation between the old world and the new world, and and a lot of sins cross over the Atlantic. I thought of Lovecraft actually a lot in this because you have like um, legacies from the old world, legacies from earlier generations haunting a family. Now, I mean, that's common in Gothic literature, of course, but you see it all again and again in Lovecraft. The, the idea of kind of lost, dangerous knowledge is something that's in Lovecraft too and is here. Um, there's so much great stuff here. And it's very much a novel of the American Revolution, about a country trying to come to terms with the disruption, just like the Whelan family is disrupted by the arrival of Carwin, the murders, and other things, you know, challenge them and force them to trans be transformed. So it, it is kind of a novel of revolution and change. So yeah, that's it. That's my thoughts on Wieland. Uh, really a great novel. I, I urge, this is one novel I must insist that everyone read at some point. So um, what's next? Well, next will be Arthur Mervyn. This will take a little bit longer. It's a longer story. It's a little bit more complex. Um, maybe not as fun as Wieland. I, I think Wieland is, is, is funner to read. But Arthur Mervyn's got a lot of great stuff too. It's... Um, it deals more with class issues, I think, and, and, and poverty. And it's set in the context of, a, of an epidemic in, in Philadelphia, I think like a yellow fever epidemic. And it's about kind of a con artist who, who takes in a, a young man and, and, and his adventures surrounding that. So a lot of great stuff in Arthur Mervyn. So I look forward to that. That'll be in the next episode. So if you're reading along, you can pick up the first... Um, yeah, so Arthur Mervyn's in two parts, so read the first half of part one. We'll, um, so we'll kind of approach it in, as, as two little novels. Each part is in, in, in two parts. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have your own thoughts about Wheatland by Charles Brockton Brown, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for, for listening. See you next time. Faces come out of the rain when you stray. No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're